Hey, welcome to another episode of I Own a Business, where we focus on helping practice owners grow the practice of their dreams. I'm your host, Dr. Steve Vargo, and I have with me IDOC's Director of Optical Strategy and Development, Susan Daly. That's a big title. Isn't it, it is a big title. That's why I read it off my thing here to make sure to write sure that I down. I didn't mess. Yeah, I, that one is written down because it's it's longer than than my title. So, all right, this is going to be fun, Susan. Tell us a little bit about you, just so people understand. I think a lot of people within the IDOC uh, community, IDOC family, know who you are. Um, we broadcast this outside the um, IDOC community. So just tell us a little bit about you and, and your role with IDOC and, and maybe some of your experience in the, the industry on the optical side. Sure. So I started in um, retail and buying uh, over 20 years ago. I won't date myself too accurately, like a tree. But you were um, 12 when you started working, which is, I, I was, I didn't know yeah. the laws allowed that. Well, it was a long time ago. You know, the laws were different. So I uh, started a long time ago. That's what my degree is in. And I worked for uh, the first eyewear retailer I worked for was actually Solstice Sunglasses selling at retail, no insurance, no, no doctor on staff, can you imagine? And um, then was the buyer for Cohen's Fashion Optical for a while, a uh, 30 store chain, uh, basically in New York City, so not national, and uh, went and started my own business for, and I owned that for seven years and really understood what it takes to be an independent business owner. And then came to IDOC to help other small business owners I got to do my dream and, and help them build the practice of their dreams. So I love working with our Kickstart members, our startups, cold starts, acquisitions. There's always a fire in their eyes that's really exciting. And um, consulted with practices for about five years and then launched um, inventory management and optical services here so that we could help them in the areas in the optical where they really struggle the most. Great. So Susan and, and her team is sort of my go-to for the, uh, like any good optometrist, probably don't know as much on the optical side as I should. So when I get he questions said it, about- not me. Yeah, I said <laughs> it. Um, we'll edit, maybe I should edit that out later. Now we'll leave it. So yeah. And I, I mean, I get questions sometimes uh, around the optical where I'll say, well, let, let me reach out to Susan about that or, or her team. So we are going to, we're going to talk about uh, 10 optical tips that drive practice revenues that drive the patient experience. We haven't landed on a title for this yet. So I'm just kind of spitballing different ideas in my head, but I think you wrote uh, a, optical. Op, yeah. We'll, we'll play with that. We'll noodle it. Um, you, was it an article that you wrote or something that you did with, with 10 optical tips? And we're going to dig into those, but anyway, that that's not important, but that's what sort of prompted uh, this, I thought it'd be great to sort of expand on that. So looking, you know, as I was looking over this list and thinking about the, what we were going to talk about, I, I think this is going to take us into the world of consumer psychology. Mm. And um, I think to a lot of ODs and, and even opticians, that optical is just sort of a room where we display frames, but there's actually a science to how the optical is set up, how things are displayed um, that can impact where the eyes are drawn when people are in the optical, uh, how long people remain in the optical, and whether or not someone actually makes a purchase. So I think these tips are um, going to be really good and, and geared toward maximizing the chance of a sale and increasing the average spend as well. So would that be a, a fair assessment? It is, yeah. And it actually is a science. There's a science to how consumers shop. There's a great book called why we buy oh my gosh um, so you're you're uh you're stealing my thunder there sorry. all right keep going i know it's but ironically <laughs> it was, i have that it's a great talk book about later yeah it's absolutely a, it's a, a fantastic book i've reread it three four times um and it was published quite a while ago i think i actually studied it in college but it's still relevant consumer psychology doesn't change that drastically year over year people are who they are and so there is a way to set up your optical in a way that most of the selling is done for you without even having to speak to the patient. So you can get yourself 80% of the way there and then you close that last 20%. So it's a really helpful um, thing to understand, I think. Yep, I'm glad you've read it because we are going to, I think, talk about some things and I'm, I'm sure probably some of the things you learned since that's the first book you cited there are drawn from that book. So this mm -hmm. is perfect. So let's jump right in. Tip sure. number one. 
So um, merchandise the ophthalmic and sun frames by brand. Don't mm-hmm. separate the suns in a single brand from the ophthalmic line. So can you can you expand on the reasons for that? Sure. There are a lot of reasons, no one better than the other, but um, generally in an optometric practice, the sun product is the least successful. It turns the least amount of times, meaning for the amount of stock that you have and how much you sell every year, it's just not turning over that quickly. So um, the knee-jerk reaction is to separate it and put your successful products together and then put your less successful product on its own board. But if you can imagine, if you want to sell something, you would want to put it next to your most successful product in order to give it its best opportunity to sell. Um, So that's one reason why we recommend putting sun next to the ophthalmic frames. But also, I think in optometry, we tend to underestimate the value of a brand. Brands that we call them purse brands, for example. And you can think of a Michael Kors, a Tory Burch, somebody that you would see a store in the mall. They have a consumer following and they do consumer advertising, direct to consumer advertising. So when somebody comes in asking for a certain brand, it's highly likely they would also like and appreciate the sun product in that brand. So there's a real opportunity for a multiple pair sale there. Whereas if they have to cross the optical and the opticals are getting bigger and bigger, I've noticed the square footage is increasing. So if they have to cross the optical, go around the corner, um, there's a seating area between the the ophthalmic frames and the sun frames. It's just not going to happen. It's going to reduce your sales overall. So we do recommend merchandising by brand to capitalize on that direct-to-consumer advertising that the brands are doing. It reminds me of when you buy something online and then that pops up, you might also like, mm-hmm. right? And then it's something yeah. very similar, whether it's the same brand or something very similar, but yeah, it makes sense. It's okay. We've, you like this, you might also like that. And I always like it. I like it too. I don't always <laughs> I, buy it, but I'm like, you know what? I do like that. I do as, like as that. As a matter of fact, I do like that. Yeah. So have you ever read the book, Why We Buy? See, that was going to be my next line, but you... <laughs> That literally was going to be, but I already know you you have. So that is a phenomenal book. I read that years mm-hmm. ago and it's called Why We Buy the Science of Shopping. And it really digs into um, and, and explains shopping behavior and how we can tailor the environment to induce people to spend more. And, and just a couple of things from the book that, that I remember, I didn't read it three times, but um, you know, when we walk in, we tend to turn to the right. So mm-hmm. what do you, what displays, what do you have there to the right that you want people to see initially, but you don't want to put those displays too close to the door. Cause usually when we walk into a store, we're in a hurry and those first 10 feet, we might just rush past a display, mm-hmm. right? So things like that, we often don't think about, but they've studied that with thousands and thousands of consumers and cameras to find out how people actually, um, uh, to better understand their behaviors while shopping. So that being said, can you speak to the, how we merchandise things in terms of when we look at a frame board from, from top to bottom and, and left to right? Uh, you mentioned some things like dark to light and large to small. What What's the system we should be thinking about on a frame board? Sure. I won't generalize based on gender, um, but you can assign your own assumptions to that. I think the book is maybe a little bit antiquated in that respect, but there are some things that they have evidence for. For example, people are often reluctant to ask for help. Now you can assign that to one gender or the other, that's up to you, but people in some retail environments are reluctant to ask for help. So for example, if you lock up your most expensive frames, they are less likely to sell because someone is generally less likely to ask for help to unlock a case than if they can shop it themselves. While it may be risky from a theft point of view in some areas to put your higher end product or your most high end product on a frame board and not have it locked, there are things that you can do to mitigate that as well, such as greeting the customer or the patient when they come in, which reduces theft drastically because they know that they've been seen. So there are other ways to mitigate theft, but if you lock up your most expensive product, you decrease your sales drastically. Um, I won't use made up percentages, but it's it definitely affects the sell through. Um, the other thing that people do is they'll put the petite frames in a row 
but no petite person can reach the top hole on a frame board. I've never seen a frame board where a petite person can reach. And also men's widths, wider frames. We're putting those in a row and they're they're doing they're putting them low. They're not going to bend over. People don't like to bend. That's another thing that they realized. So once you see this, you can't unsee it. Next time you're in the grocery store, the best known brands are all merchandised at eye level. And eye level is considered between anywhere from 5'4 to 5'8. It's the standard height of, of most people. Um, I say 5'4 because I am 5'4. It's really like 5'6 to 5'8. Sure. But <laughs> gave myself some, some leeway there. But everything, the most popular brands pay the stores to be merchandised at eye level. So Tide, for example, won't be merchandised up and down. It'll be on a single shelf together, and that's at eye level. So if you're ever looking for something different, organic food, vegan food, something that's a little bit more expensive, you're having a party, um, you want the expensive pickles, not the standard pickles. You have to look up and look down because those brands can't afford to out buy the name brands. So they never get the eye level. So when you think about merchandising large to small, a person who fits in a larger frame, whether it be women's, men's, genderless, is generally going to be taller, generally, and then they're going to be able to reach higher. Someone who fits in a more petite width frame is generally going to be smaller, not always, but generally, so you can merchandise those lower. Also dark to light. This really applies in sunglasses because ophthalmic frames, um, they don't have colored lenses in them, so the frame color doesn't matter as much. But when you think about sunglasses, the lighter the frame, generally the lighter the lens. They'll put a pink lens, they'll put the lighter lenses in the lighter frames. So darker things are just easier to see farther away. If people are five, six to five, eight, generally, if you put the darker frames at the top, they're easier to see. Whereas you're closer to the lighter frames, so you can see them more easily. So those are just some of the reasons why we recommend what we do. Keeping the feet, and this may fall in line with what we already discussed, but you mentioned as, as uh, tip number three, keeping similar features together as much as possible. Grouping your examples were grouping the aviators, double bar bridges, acetates, and and metals. And that would that just be similar to what we talked about before, where if you're interested in in one style or brand, having a, a similar style or brand next to it would only make sense. It does because it appeals to the same consumer. Um, another thing that I don't think is in the tips is we generally merchandise similar brands together. So you would think, well, these brands are very similar. I want to carry them both. I'll separate them from each other. But that would be like going into a Banana Republic and some of the women's product is here, but some of the men's product is here. And some of the women's product is over here, but some of the men's is over here. No, you have women's sections and you have men's sections because it's highly likely that they appeal to a similar consumer. So in eyewear, a lot of the brands are going genderless. So we don't recommend merchandising based on gender. We merchandise based on brand. That said, there are some features within brands that appeal to a similar consumer. So sections based on fashion, sport, um, conservative, those are more things that you would group together instead of really basing it on gender. I'll share a quick story. And I, I got a chance to experience what it's like to be a consumer in yeah. in an optical. We were on vacation and my um, my sunglasses broke. And so I, I, I wanted new sunglasses and I went into a... Um, uh, an, an eye care practice and I had a prescription. I just wanted the sunglasses and I didn't tell them I was an optometrist. And the reason was I didn't want them to assume that I knew what I was doing in there. I just wanted somebody to come because I hadn't really looked at sunglasses in a while and I was right. open to feedback on new styles, you know, what's going to look best on me. And um, I remember the optician came over and I, I asked for some help. And basically she said, well, there's the women's frames over there and, and there's the men's frames over there. Let me know when you find something you like. And I remember in that moment thinking, okay, this is what it feels like to be in an optical surrounded by frames and, and feeling overwhelmed. And I, I remember thinking in that moment, I just want someone to make it easy. I want this process to be easy, uncomplicated. So I, I think a lot of what we're talking about is setting up an optical. So it, that's conducive for the patient where it just feels like an easy, seamless experience. Mm -hmm. 
Exactly. I think um, we have to be careful about how we separate the product. So for example, men's high end, and there are some frames that will only suit men because of the temple lengths, because of the eye sizes. There are, but men and women will find their way to what they're interested in. And um, so gender stereotypes, we don't really merchandise that way. But again, we merchandise by categories, fashion, um, maybe things that are covered by managed vision care. You want to maybe have a section for that. Um, and then maybe a high-end section that's carpeted so we can go into floor coverings. It's not that interesting for the majority of people, but I find it interesting um, how people respond to floor coverings. But when we, when that's how we greet people, we automatically reduce the chance of us closing a sale. So imagine you're going into your favorite clothing retailer. And as soon as you walk in, they say, are you here for shirts or pants? Well, I, I hadn't really thought that far ahead. And that's what we do. Are you here for ophthalmic or sun? And even before they come in for the appointment, are you having coming for an eyeglass appointment or a contact lens appointment? Well, what if I want both? Now you've automatically cut your possibility for a sale in half. We do this as well with managed vision care. Imagine if you walked into your favorite clothing retailer and they said, do you have enough money on your credit card to pay for these glasses, for, for these pants? You know, well, no, I was going to put myself into debt to buy them. Is that a problem? So starting the conversation from what looks good on them, right? Deciding if they like a men's or women's frame automatically. Um, and then also their ability to purchase based on price point is just going to limit your sales automatically. So we want to kind of greet the customer and then step back a little bit and watch their behavior. Generally, you will find that people will find their way toward their section. Once they do, we can approach them again and say, I love that frame that you're wearing. Here's one that's similar that we just got in. Have them try that on. And they'll give you some feedback about that. So we're not saying men's frames, women's frames. And even if you see them trying on the wrong frame, the temple lengths are too short, which is something I see with men a lot because they've gone for a women's frame. You can just gently go over and say, try this on. Not because those temple lengths are too short, but just try this on. I, it, we just got it in. I find it looks great on someone of your height, something like that. Mm -hmm. And they'll give you feedback about that. And with that feedback, you can show them a second pair based on their feedback. And we call this the three pair presentation. By that third pair, you should understand what color and size and style they're looking for. And that third pair is generally a home run. They do this in footwear. If you ever shop for footwear and go into a, a shoe store, they'll bring out three pairs without you even noticing. Something similar to what you're wearing, something that looks good on everybody so that you're at least, have, you have a good chance of liking it even if it's not right for you that day. And then based on that feedback, they show you that third pair. And that's usually a home run. So that takes us into the next category, which is less is more. And that, that mm -hmm. three pair approach is really interesting because again, it, it's how I felt with my experience in that optical looking around at 800, 900 frames, even if we cut that in half on gender, 450, I still felt overwhelmed with the process. So you know, bringing people that's, I was actually going to ask you about that. What, what is your recommended number? Should the patient sit down? Should an optician bring over X number of pairs? Are you familiar with that jams, that famous jam study at all, where they, yes. if I get the numbers right, they, they displayed 24 different jams at a store. Mm -hmm. And this was part of a, an experiment and people loved it. They came over and sampled all the different ones, but only 3% of people made a purchase they reduced the selection down to six different jams and sales went up 900% because mm -hmm. it just felt less overwhelming. I think we need to consider that in an optical. If you carry 800 frames, 1200 frames, that's very overwhelming to the consumer's senses when they walk in. So that that less is more approach. I think we've already sort of covered that in the sense of, of grouping things together. And you mentioned people will find their way. So you walk in, you, you're surrounded by frames, but once you kind of find your way to a, a section and there's some similar groupings there, that automatically shrinks it down with that less is more approach, but also your approach would be, would it be sitting the patient down and saying, let me go grab you three pairs and, and bring them over. And if they don't like those, what happens next? You take them all back, grab three more and bring them over. 
yeah there's there's the jam study is one of my favorites so i get a little fluttery yeah, really excited. On this stuff. we didn't even <laughs> yeah. do a prep for this i know well it's such a great study because and this is totally off topic but this is the problem with online dating the option to talk to anybody is overwhelming and reduces the likelihood that somebody is going to make a purchase. And here's the real problem with patient retention. Even if they've made a purchase, it reduces their happiness with that purchase because they know how many other options they are and people don't trust their own decision-making. So even if a patient is leaving that 900-piece, 1,500-piece optical with a purchase, they are less satisfied with that purchase. And that's the really scary part because when you look at online e-commerce retailers of eyewear, they do not have 900 pieces on their website to select from. They don't. And even on their ophthalmic page or their sun page, they'll only display one color and you can click and see the other colors, but they're narrowing your visual selection down so that your decision-making is faster and your happiness with that decision is higher. So the three-pair presentation is a response to that, what I call the peanut butter problem, because it's a jam study, but who eats a jam sandwich? Nobody. You have to then take your jam decision and go look for peanut butter. Has anyone been in the peanut butter, butter aisle lately? You have salt-free, less salt, more salt, extra salt, premium salt, organic salt, and then you have chunky, not so chunky, really chunky. You have different sizes. You have a two-pack. You have a smaller one of a two-pack. You have a bigger value size, all different prices. The number of variables increases exponentially. I would leave the jam on the shelf and just walk out. I don't have time for this. So we think about the frame decision but then we go from the frame and we say, great, maybe you're happy with that decision. I didn't overwhelm you. Well, now we're gonna talk about lenses and that's the peanut butter problem because it doesn't stop at the frame. Then we're going to go on the lenses and we're gonna talk about AR and we're gonna talk about blue light. We're gonna talk about, do you want a premium progressive or do you not like yourself? We're, you know, we're gonna talk about all of the different options that they have zero expertise or experience in. Right. Instead of having a three pair presentation that either works or it doesn't, but at least helps inform the patient's decision on their own so that they can shop of what they liked and what they didn't. And then going to this is the lens that I recommend. And here's why, based on your prescription and letting the patient say, I don't like this or that, and then going to a different lens. So it's still the three-pair presentation with the lenses. And that's what we need to work on as well. After you get the jam and the peanut butter, you need bread. Have you been to the bread aisle lately? It's horrifying. It's, <laughs> it's literally horrifying. a whole aisle. It's a whole aisle of bread. Different, I mean, tortilla bread. And, and, and this, it's just, it's, and then with the whole gluten-free, it's just ridiculous. And that's when we go into the managed care conversation. Oh, do you want to use your health insurance or your vision insurance? Do you want to use it toward the frame and the lens or just the lens or just the frame? So, and the, the scary part is that we find as patients spend more than 40 to 45 minutes in your practice, the sales decrease, right? So you want to think about the lunch hour. They have one hour to get to you, spend time with you, make a purchase and get back to wherever they came from. So. Um, the less complexity we can have, the better. You mentioned, I think when you were referencing peanut butter, that if there's too many choices, you're just going to walk out. Mm -hmm. A lot of people do walk out. And mm -hmm. even in, in, I've read the research on this, a lot of companies have actually increased sales by, by limiting the number of their products. I know there's one, I can't remember. It might've been toothpaste, uh, Procter Gamble. I, I don't remember the specifics of it, but they went from several selections on store shelves down to just, you know, a few or one or two and sales went up um, quite a bit because people just had, had fewer choices. So if we could nerd out for a second, again, on that consumer psychology aspect, one of the biggest things that holds us back as consumers is risk. And when there's too many choices and we don't feel confident we're making the right choice to your point before where there, if there's all these different options, right? 
there's a sense of risk that we're fearing that we're, we're losing, we're missing out on something. Mm -hmm. And a lot of times that will cause people to hit pause on a decision or just walk out. So again, mm -hmm. this is really geared toward what we want, what our consumer mind wants is someone to just come along and make the choice easy, right? When we want to, if we're in a new town and we're looking for a, an Italian restaurant, that's what we're hungry for. We're not going to do all the research to find mm -hmm. out which is the best restaurant. We're going to, we're going to, get on a, a review site or we're going to jump on a social media and just, Hey, I'm in town. Anyone who lives here have any suggestions? We want it to be made easy for us. And that, that reduces the risk and makes us much more comfortable with our decisions. So moving on um, tip number five, I thought this one was interesting. Always buy in three colors if mm. possible. Why is that? It's the three prayer presentation. So we talk about reducing choice what you actually want to do is reduce the number of brands you carry, but go deeper within those brands. If you have seven pieces in every brand, the patient knows that there are more colors and sizes in that style. They know it intuitively. Again, go back to everyone's shopping experience, clothing. Everyone's been in a clothing store at some point. So one of the things that I heard when I shopped in optical was I, I said, I only wear black frames, obviously. And by the way, I only wear genderless or men's frames. So again, don't pigeonhole people. Um, so I went into a, an optical and I said, you don't have any black frames. And they said, well, everything comes in black. But a black frame and a tortoise frame, when you try it on, can even look like they're different sizes because of the way color affects our vision. So if I try on the hot pink one because you wanted to have some fun in the optical, but I'm really going to buy the black. When I get the black in, it can look much more harsh on my face. It can be much smaller. So visually, so a frame that looked good in one color will maybe not look good or vice versa in another color. So how do we get around this but not overwhelm people? We have fewer brands. We go deeper within those brands. So... We don't want to cannibalize our brands. You don't want three, four that are geared toward the same customer, but maybe one or two. And having that good selection will increase your sales up to a point, what we were talking about earlier. We don't want too many. So if we're going to commit to a brand, then you want to do generally three colors per style and fewer styles. So it's always playing this scale game of we have fewer brands, but more styles within a brand. We have fewer styles, but more colors within a style. So the idea is, if you've ever bought a house, they'll show you a house that's exactly what you asked for, a house that's outside of your price range. And then the third house is exactly what you're looking for based off of your feedback, plus some features you didn't know you wanted because the real estate agent knows their market. And it's slightly above your price range. And they know that you're going to stretch for it. So this three-pair presentation exists all over in our lives. Um, you just have to know to look for it. And once you see it, you can't unsee it. Like I said, it's very frustrating to be a consumer after you know these things. But um, the three-pair presentation, you want to have the black, the tortoise, and then some color that represents the brand. And then the patient knows, okay, I have the color that's drawing me to the board will increase your sales. It's not a sea of black and tortoise. But I know I'm going to buy the black and the tortoise. Brunettes are going to go for the black or the tortoise. Blondes are going to go for the tortoise. I mean, this is just what people are comfortable with, to your point, avoiding risk. But you have to have that color in order to make the optical attractive so that it gets shopped. If you just do black and tortoise, it won't get shopped because it's boring. So it's always about this balance of more and less all the time. Have you ever heard the data on, and I, I think it was Mark Hinton who I heard mention this, the percentage of people who, who purchased the first pair they try on hmm. is really high. Mm -hmm. I thought that was interesting. Um, yeah. And I'm not sure why, but it, it was like 80 to 90%. Mm -hmm. Does that sound right? Yeah, it is very high. And that's why the three pair presentation and people also make the mistake of showing the patient something that's different from what they're wearing because they're trying to make a sale. But actually what you want to do is the first time you approach them, pull a frame that's almost exactly what they're wearing because you know that they like it. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, they've already have... put all the mental energy in of making that purchase before. So you that it gives it's uh data <laughs> that you get to it's, use. They're right? giving you data just by looking at you. They're giving you data what they like. So show them something similar and they'll say, well, it's too similar to what I have. Okay, show them the same frame in another color. So now you have a style that you know that they like and you're showing them another color. Most people will go back to the first one that you showed them. So you're very efficient with a few of your answers. So for tip number six and seven, I'll just do a, a, maybe a quick recap because you already covered sure. them in, in other. One was uh, high-end frames is not locking them up. And I've seen that before. You've got a high-end expensive frame and it's in a case, it's locked. You've got cameras on it. You've got an armed security guard standing in front of the case. And no one has a key. And no, no matter who you ask, you nobody has the key. Someone who wants you it gotta, bad enough, you've got to smash the glass. Got that little thing and you got to... You're saying make it more accessible. You're saying roll the dice on a, you know, on the possibility of a theft, which is probably still low. Very slim. Um, and I, I, I had forgot about that. The saying hello to somebody or greeting somebody when they walk in and knowing that they're seen. So I I, I won't, I probably shouldn't, and I, and I won't mention the... Uh, the store, but it's a major retailer. I worked there when I was in college and you could walk in at that time. It might've changed. You could basically walk in and walk out with a TV and steal it. Nobody was going to stop you mm -hmm. because they got into trouble once because I think they chased somebody out into a parking lot and he got hit by a car and the store got sued. So their policy was that just, if somebody wants it, they can walk out once they're out the door, mm -hmm. they, they just considered a cost of doing business. They knew how much they lost a year in sales, but their policy is they had um, a handful of security people inside the store and cameras. And when they mm -hmm. saw somebody either suspicious or somebody who would sneak something, you know, into their, their coat is they, they would just approach them and say, hello, do you need help with anything? Are you mm -hmm. sure? And, and just follow them around for a little bit, giving them the impression they were onto them and then walk away. And their hope was that they would just abandon it because they were afraid, but they, they were seen. So it's interesting to have, I mean, it's probably a good approach anyway, from a customer service standpoint to greet people when they come in, but yeah, I see. You. Yes. And the number one greeting that I've heard in optometry is, do you have an appointment? <laughs> That's not quite a greeting. That's more, um, I find that quite inquisitive. Maybe I just want to look was, around. Yeah. Yes. I just, um, so we just want to say hi to people. We just want to say hi. The opportunity for theft decreases drastically if you say hi and you make eye contact and they recognize you because they know that you've seen them and that you're watching. But that said, this, this is really in strip mall environments. This is in mall environments. The independently located independent practice does not have high theft. And if they do, it's internal. That's just because the chances of someone just coming into shop are incredibly slim. Uh, you're mostly going to have people who have an appointment. And in that case, you have their name, their credit card, their license, their managed vision care. They're generally not going to steal from you. And they're there for 45 minutes. Thieves don't hang out for 45 minutes. Um, but even if someone steals a frame, and again, a, a really great way to avoid this is to always have your practice full, always have the boards full. If you have boards, shelves are a little bit harder, but always have every hole full so that if you scan around, I used to do this at Solstice, you'd scan around, you'd see a hole and you have to find it. And it's usually a, a customer trying it on. But if you can't find it, it was usually at the high end board, it's gone. Mm -hmm. Maybe you paid 200, you topped out at 250 for that frame. That's what you paid, that's what you lost. But if you can increase your sales, even make one more sale than you would have by not locking them up, you've made 250. So you've evened out your loss. Of that theft. So theft in independent optometry is not really something that we worry about in terms of merchandising. So I'm going to go at a little bit of a different direction um, from the tips, but just I'd like to ask your thoughts on something you mentioned about theft, that if we make it more accessible, but we sell more of it, even if somebody steals one once in a while, but we sell and we come out ahead, is it you know worth it just to make that? Mm -hmm. Or the same thing comes up a lot with return policies. What are your thoughts on that? So if, you know, and there's a lot of hesitation in the industry to give returns, which I, I understand to a point, but if lowering, again, lowering that risk, and usually these are with um, maybe something higher end or new technology, or somebody's never worn progressives before a certain type of uh, uh, lens treatment, 
optical design is there's some risk there. Well, what if I spend this extra money? It doesn't work. Like you say, it's going to work. What if I have trouble adapting to it? So I don't think I'm going to go with that. But what if you made it easier through a more flexible return policy? And some people are going to bring it back. Mm -hmm. But if you sell 10 pairs, extra pairs of frames for everyone that brings it back because you've lowered the risk, is that worth it? So what is Susan Daly's thoughts on, on return policies? Retail, in general, the industry is incredibly lenient with returns, and they do that because they, they work in volume. But we have to remember, this is where we become more healthcare providers. If I call my doctor and say my prescription is making me sick, they're not going to continue to make me take it. They're going to write me a new prescription. Now, we work in product. We have physical product that we're dispensing to the patient. But at the end of the day, it's, it's a healthcare product. If you want to keep that patient, you need to let them come back. I buy four pairs a year and I return 50% of what I buy. But they're still making more on me than they would make on somebody else. So, and you'll learn if you listen, if you make a flexible return policy, you'll learn. And the great thing about having an independent business in any industry is that you can be incredibly nimble. The story I always tell is of a hardware store in this town I lived in. It was 1,400 people. And every time I went in and I asked for something and he didn't have it, he would have it the next week. Because he can do that. He's not, he doesn't have to go through eight, 15 chains of hierarchy to bring in a new product line. So if you have someone come in and they're looking for something very specific and you don't have it, you can have it the next week. There's no reason that you can't. You don't need 150 of that thing, but you can have it. You can even reach out to that patient and say, hey, I got in this product I think you might like. But when it comes to lenses, especially if you're dispensing new technology, you're never going to be able to fix it and see if it actually works if you don't let the patient know that they can come back. Now, a lot of times patients will come back to, quote, return something, and it's really the frame is fitting wrong, it's crooked, so it's making them dizzy, or maybe you've changed their prescription and you realize that you've overcorrected. And yes, maybe they'll take some time and they'll adapt to it, but at the end of the day, your customer, your patient is unhappy. And in the healthcare environment specifically, we need to be sensitive to that. But what I always say in any area of the practice is quantify the concern. I like alliteration, peanut butter problem, quantify the concern, makes it easy to remember. So if you are instituting a strict return policy, I'm gonna need you to prove to me that you have an exorbitantly high return rate that is impacting your profitability. And if you can't prove that, then it's not actually a problem. It feels like a problem, but any negative thing that happens to us will outweigh 10 positive things because it's our primal brain. We, we avoid pain. So one customer comes back, one patient comes back and they don't like our progressives. They can't adapt to them. That feels like, oh, we need to create a new return policy. This is too expensive. That was a $700 sale. We've lost the patient. Mm. But if you're a $2 million practice, you shouldn't even waste a second thinking about that return. You should take the feedback and apply it if it's continuous and consistent. But we need to quantify the concern in all areas. That's with capture rates. That's with multiple pair sales, high-end sales, everything. And you mentioned you need to prove to me that it's an exor exorbitant return rate that's pretty rare it's this is usually it's pretty rare that people bring glasses back it's usually for most practices a pretty small percentage and if it's high you got to look at what what is going on or do you need more training in the optical is it the doctor you know not prescribing the right prescription is it, it's right. probably more likely that something internally that that could be addressed and two things come to mind it's interesting because i hear this a lot too is one person comes in and complains or makes things difficult and the thought is okay we need to create a policy so I read this in a book once, don't punish 80%. It was from right. not, not from healthcare. So I'll use the word customers. Don't punish 98% of your customers for the 2% that makes, makes things difficult. Um, right. And the other was just, you know, on, on that return policy, something else I was reading recently is um, a, uh, the concept is book on sales. And the author said the real key to sales is make the consumer feel stupid for saying no. Right. And if you can get to that point, and I, I think when you put up rigid return policies, it gives them a reason to say no. It, it puts up something that creates some risk. So the more of these things you can lower, and yes, occasionally somebody will bring those glasses back. So occasionally somebody will have buyer's remorse. But if that causes your sales to go up, it, you know, con 
consistently and abundantly, I, I think it's worth it to, to consider these things and, and how they'll affect your sales. So uh, moving ahead, I think we can, again, jump past tip number seven, keep moving because we uh, already touched on that one, but you mentioned that was the one where you said, where you place the frames, putting kids' frames mm. at the bottom. Some of this probably more common sense. Um, interesting, you mentioned that we'll normally drawn toward the eye level and um, you know women's frames and where where they can be reached and men's frames where they can be reached. So just something to consider. You know, I always think of the checkout lanes where they've got all the candy for the kids at a yeah. kind of a lower level because mom yeah. or dad is is just tired. Funny, wants to get out of the store. Right? Hey, yeah. can I have a Snickers bar? Yeah, whatever. Yeah, just, fine. Let's go grab one. Yes. Let's go. But they're down at eye level for a reason. They don't put that real high because they want to get the kids at the end of the experience when mom or dad is just tired. They just want to get out of the store. So uh, tip number eight, merchants, I, I, I mentioned before my experience in that Optico where the optician said men's frames are over there and women's frames mm. are over there. So they were separated by gender. And you're saying that's not a good idea. Merchandise by brand, not by gender. Correct. Yes. Um, you can have a very tall man with a very thin face that needs a smaller frame. And you can find it in the women's section. So it's really about fit and features and function. It's not about making a prejudgment about either their ability to pay or what they'll look good in. And again, an adult coming into an optometric practice is likely going to already be wearing a frame. So go off of what they have. I, I will say that patients will find their way. They will, if the practice is merchandised by brand, brands are geared towards certain demographics. You don't market a women's brand to men. So the signage will be of a woman over that brand. The colors will be pink and purple and blue and their signature color, maybe a floral in some of these brands. Patients will find their way. And if something doesn't fit them correctly, the number one problem that I see that drives me up a wall is men wearing too short temple lengths. But that's not because they're wearing a women's frame. It's because they're wearing a too short temple length. So even if they're in the right section, it's always our responsibility to say it's not quite the right fit. And here's why. Try this. So you don't want to make them feel like they've made a mistake, like they don't know what they're doing or what looks good on them. Always have an alternative solution um, for that. So if we merchandise by brand, the practice looks more cohesive because the brands each have their own story. So keeping those visual cues together. Uh, always works out better. And and by the way, again, a lot of the products is genderless these days. I'm not going to name any brands, but everything I wear is a genderless frame. And there are celebrities who are male who are wearing the exact same frame. So we just don't necessarily want to pigeonhole people. And the more high-end the product, the more likely it is to be genderless. Tip number nine speaks to presentation, something maybe we we lose sight of a little bit, maybe something we started paying a little bit more attention to, to during COVID, but the frames are being handled a lot by the opticians, by the patients, they're trying them on, they're putting them back, right? So there's, they could get dirty for one. Mm -hmm. And also you mentioned making sure that the the stickers are removed. So I think that's important in terms of the, the presentation that it makes when somebody pulls something off the shelf. It's going to be a little bit different if you see a smudge on there or a sticker or something that makes it look low quality. So maybe this one speaks for itself, but just making sure that we're um, being mindful of the um, uh, cleaning the glasses, taking the stickers off. Anything else? Just because they're demo lenses doesn't mean they can be dirty. That's the tip that you're looking at. <laughs> I think so. Yeah. Um, yeah, so in somewhere you see this, where someone is walking around constantly with a big cleaning cloth thrown over their shoulder, and they're constantly cleaning the lenses because they're not going to change the lenses and put a prescription in them, so they need to be clean in order to sell the frames. And because there's no managed vision care at a sunglass hut, a solstice, a sunwear retailer, um, they need to get that cash purchase, so they need to be able to justify the price. So it needs to be clean. And you'd think that that was common sense, but it, just because we're replacing the lenses doesn't mean that they can be dirty. No one wants to try on a dirty demo, even if you're going to swap out the lenses. And it will give the impression that it's old, that it's been there for a while. Things only get dusty, really, if they haven't moved. 
So I would almost prefer a frame that everyone has tried on versus one that's dusty because at least people are being drawn to it and I know that it's not dusty. But there's a really easy way to fix that and that is get those huge cleaning cloths that are really easy to use and just go around once an hour if you're not doing anything, if you're in between patients. Um, instead of sitting at the dispensing desk and putting in insurance information, you can allocate a time of the day for that. But while we're open, we really need to make sure that we have a good presentation for the consumer, especially when the average purchase is anywhere between $300 to $700, including frame and lens. That's, that's a big ask if it's dirty. And Susan, wrapping things up with tip number 10, know your audience. Don't display technical frames unless you live in a technical area. That was the example you used. So please um, elaborate <laughs> on that a little bit. Sure. The way that we talk about assortments and we talked a lot about less is more and um, how to merchandise based on brand and how to kind of limit the patient's selection and not overwhelm them, but still have something for people. The, the way that we want to think about this is you have something for everyone, not everything for someone. I should not be able to walk into an optometric practice and immediately see the perfect sunglasses for me, the perfect primary pair for me, the perfect secondary pair, the perfect technical pair, the perfect computer pair, the perfect ski goggle. I don't need to see all of this at the exact same time. And if someone is looking for something, they will ask. And if you live in a mining town, by all means, display the safety frames because that's your local demographic. But at the same time, if you live in a very high-end area, Beverly Hills or something like this, and that's where your practice is, maybe don't put the completely covered managed vision care product out. We want to think about playing to the majority here. So there's a reason why Audi and Volkswagens are not sold at the same place, because they're different customers. Same company, in case people don't know, same company. And if you don't know, Old Navy Gap and Banana Republic are also all the same company, but they don't sell the product in the same place. And that's how they're able to get the price points that they are because they're capturing the correct demographic and providing them with the right product at the right price in the right place at the right time. So that is the pinnacle of merchandising. You've identified your demographic and then you're providing them what they need. And optometric practice is unique in that if you were a podiatrist and you sold shoes, you would have to have the baby shoes and you'd have to have the shoes for the retiree, the older kind of um, therapy shoes, if you will. So we have to have this, but we don't have to display it. And that's a very different proposition, but an important distinction. See, this was fun. This was just <laughs> Susan Daly Gold from the minute I hit record. Just pure. I could go on and gold. on. Well, I was just you know, thinking really we set up uh, 11, um, <laughs> tip eleven through twenty in the future. So we'll give yeah, you a we'll right. we'll give you the platform again at some point. But but really, thank you. I I, I hope that a lot of people listen to this, um, ODs, opticians, because I I'm interested in, in this. Always have been. Not sure why, but just that that consumer psychology. What impacts sort of those intangibles that impact people's decisions? There's a lot of things there. I mm -hmm. loved what you said in the beginning that you, eighty percent of the work could be done for you. Mm -hmm. I don't know if that's a scientific number, but but the principle behind it is accurate. When people walk in, make it as seamless and easy as possible for the patient, where you just have to come along and just kind of walk them across the finish line. Absolutely. So, well, thanks again. So. Um, Susan, we can help people uh, with your role at, at, at IDOT. We have an inventory management program. So just as we close out, maybe talk a little bit about that. We get a lot of people as with marketing, as with um, a lot of other things, finance, um, certainly optical that say, all this sounds great, but can somebody just help me with it? I don't have time to, to learn all this stuff and do all this on my own. So um, can you explain what we do at IDOT with inventory management? Yeah, absolutely. This I call a Jurassic Park principle for anyone who's seen yeah, the original. You do have a lot of... Uh... I do. I love a good metaphor in case anyone hasn't noticed. And I can never just answer the question that was asked. These are my areas of improvement. Um, but sometimes we, we focus so much on the fact that we can, we don't stop to think if we should. 
Even if you understood everything we talked about today, it makes complete sense to you. You read the book, Why We Buy, you read it four times, and you implement every single thing in that book to make you more successful, and it works. Is that where the OD owner, the practice manager, the optical manager needs to be spending their time? Or can we outsource the mechanics of inventory planning, assortment planning, merchandising, so that we can focus on actually getting the frames in the patient's hands and maximizing the patient experience, which is something that cannot be done remotely. And that's our complaint with e-commerce and optometry, isn't it? That you can't get the same experience and the same quality of care remotely. That is something you can't outsource. So focusing on that and improving that to grow your business is really where I recommend spending your time. And things like marketing, things like accounting, things like inventory management, assortment planning, these can be outsourced, not because you're bad at them, but because it's not where you need to be spending your time in order to maximize not just your revenue, but your patient's experience overall to grow your business. So yes, we have a service here at IDOC called inventory management, where everything we talked about today and more we do for you so that you don't have to focus on it. I always think of the term, one of my favorite terms from my my MBA courses was opportunity cost. And it got mm -hmm. me thinking not just professionally, but personally as well, is when you are, and it, it that can apply to your time, it can apply to your money. But if I'm investing an hour of my time into doing this, that's an hour of my time I can't get back that I could have been doing something else. So is that the best use of my time? Money's the same way, right? If I've got $100 to spend on, on the, or let's just make it, equipment or technology in an office, which is going to be a lot more than a hundred. You know, if I got $50,000 that I'm going to invest into this technology, that's 50 G's that I can invest into another piece of technology. There's an, there's a, an opportunity cost there. So is, is that the best use of my time and money? So I, I think that's certainly something that you should consider because all these things, things we talked about are extremely important, but is it the best use of your time? That's the question and I think you have to ask yourself. Absolutely. In any leadership book, there is a, a success metric that they will tell you to focus on, and that is time for money. And so if you think about something everybody does cutting your lawn, if it takes you two hours to cut your lawn, would that time make you more successful and make you more money if you spent that two hours working at your job, working on a skill set, working on growing your career? And if it would generate more revenue by you focusing on your career, then it would cost you to pay someone to cut your lawn that's a clear ROI. That's a clear, better investment. So we're very good at this when we invest in the stock market. We're very good at this when we invest in real estate and, and we actually invest our money in things. But when we think about our time, we lose that a little bit, a lot. And we tend to focus on the things we like to do instead of the things that generate revenue. Well, thanks again, Susan. We'll close out there. Yeah. Really appreciate your time. Yeah. Thank you, Dr. Steve Vargo, OD, MBA. MBA. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, all right. Well, thanks, Susan. Hope to see you soon. And uh, thanks everyone for listening. If you'd like more information about IDOC or inventory management, as, as Susan was just talking about, you can um, reach out to us if you want more information on IDOC and how we work with ODs to help them grow the practice of their dreams. Uh, you can find out more at IDOC.net. So thanks, Susan. And thanks everyone for listening. Thank you.